Specialty Story, session number 51. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast is here to tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, sharing stories of different physicians and their specialties so that you as a pre-med or medical student or even a resident can figure out what it is that you want to do in the future. This week, I have an awesome guest. It was a great interview. It was actually somebody that was over to our house for Thanksgiving, and I roped him into coming down into my studio in the basement, and we recorded this podcast to talk all about neuro-ophthalmology and community-based neuro-ophthalmology at that. Dr. Brian Pham is a community-based neuro-ophthalmologist who's only been out of training for a few months, so he's brand new to this. And he is sharing his story about his journey to become a neuro-ophthalmologist. So we start off, as always, by talking about what initially drew him to neuro-ophthalmology. I was at a, actually a particularly difficult time in my neurology residency and, and actually was a little bit uh, dis- disenfranchised from uh, neurology. And uh, the next rotation that I had coming up was actually neuro-ophthalmology. And that month really just rejuvenated my love for medicine and for neurology. What about it rejuvenated you? I like that there was a uh, a wide variety of disease. Um, actually, you could see all different areas of neurology um, represented within neuro-ophthalmology. There are strokes that affect vision. There are uh, movement disorders of the eyes. A little bit of everything. Right. What was it about neurology that had you disenfranchised? So it was at the end of my first year of neurology and then towards the beginning of the second, but right, just having the, um, the, the very busy workload and without a real break. Yeah. So I, I remember Allison, and if you're listening to this, Allison's my wife, who's also a neurologist. That first year of neurology is your second year of postgraduate training, right? So you do your internship. Correct. And then your junior in neurology, that first year of neurology, she was destroyed that year. And so it sounds like it's not an uncommon thing. Right. I think across the board, the um, the first year of neurology, the, the PGY2 year, tends to be the most difficult for, for everybody. Yeah, that's crazy. All right. Well, so if you're going into neurology, expect that if you're listening to this. What traits do you think lead to being a good neuro-ophthalmologist? I think somebody that really likes to take the, the time to, to think over their patients. It's a very cerebral field. Not, as, as is neurology <laughs> as, as a whole. Neurology, that's correct. Yeah. Not too much in terms of procedures, but I like the mystery uh, of the patients and, and trying to figure that out. And so if that's something that, uh, that you find interesting as well, it would be a great fit. So it sounds like, and we had this discussion before we hit record, neuro-ophthalmology, you don't do a lot of surgery. You don't do any surgery because you're, you're and we'll go into this a little bit later, you're a neurology-trained neuro-ophthalmologist. So you're not a surgeon. You're not actually operating on any sort of pathologies or, or conditions. Right. Okay. Interesting. So your diagnostic neuro-ophthalmology, 
in the neuro-ophthalmology world, is there that division of a diagnostic neuro-ophthalmologist and a surgical neuro-ophthalmologist? There are neuro-ophthalmologists that uh, also do additional training in, um, in oculoplastics, and so they'll, they'll uh, be a little bit more surgically minded. As you were going through your training as a neurologist, what other subspecialties, if any, were kind of in the running for fellowship training? Initially, it was actually neurointensive care, but then I realized I don't really <laughs> like terribly sick patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the intensity of it. Correct. <laughs> so talk about the types of patients that you're treating, that you're seeing. What sort of diseases, pathologies are you treating on a day-to-day basis? So about one-third of the brain uh, volume is uh, dedicated to, to vision. And uh, so I, as you can imagine, anything that affects the brain can and often does affect vision. Uh, we see essentially everything that can affect vision that doesn't come from the eye itself. So things like uh, strokes affecting areas of the brain, causing vision loss, um, as well as uh, different eye movement abnormalities. Explain the difference. If, if I were a primary care, so, so there's somebody listening to this who's going to go into family practice, who's going to go on to, into internal medicine or pediatrics, bread and butter primary care, why would somebody refer to neuro-optho over ophthalmology? I guess I'll start with kind of our, our bread and butter um, diagnosis is a condition called idiopathic intracranial hypertension or uh, pseudotumor cerebri. Um, where the pressure in, in the brain builds up and, um, and that can lead to um, vision loss when it puts pressure on the optic nerves and, and causes them to swell. Nothing in the eye itself is abnormal. The problem is it's further on back. And, and so any conditions um, it, that, um, where the, the eyeball itself it, it is normal, um, but the vision is affected would be appropriate for a, a neuro-ophthalmologist. So would ophthalmology refer to neuro-optho? I do often get referrals from from my colleagues in in ophthalmology, but um, I I do also get quite a few from primary care physicians. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about the residency path to become a neuro-ophthalmologist. How do you you get there? So you can get there uh, in one of two ways, either through a neurology residency or an ophthalmology residency, because it is a a non-surgical subspecialty. That is why it is an option through neurology. So you do the, the typical... Uh, either neurology or, or ophthalmology residency, and then it, that's followed by a one-year fellowship in the neuro-ophthalmology. Okay. And it's non-surgical fellowship. Correct. Okay. Just just learning, treating, diagnosing. The the joke in neurology is always about finding the lesion and knowing knowing the location, right? Localizing localizing the lesion. Oh, yes. But then not being able to do anything about it. Is, is there the same running joke in neuro-ophthalm? For a lot of things, there there is, um, but there are um, there are some things that that we are able to um, to treat and and to cure. Um, one of which uh, is benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. Um, actually, probably one of the only things that we are actually able to <laughs> fully cure. Yeah, um, but that that is uh, it, that is true. It, it is kind of the uh, the the diagnose and 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 unfortunately adios. Yeah, <laughs> diagnose and adios. I like that. And uh, don't forget to pay your bill on the way out. <laughs> what? So, so let's get back to describing a typical week for you. So, as a neurologist by residency training, neuro ophthalmologist by fellowship training, how much of your job is neuro optho versus neurology? 
Um, currently, I, I do a about eighty percent general neurology and twenty um, percent neuro ophthalmology. Um, there are neuro ophthalmologists that do full time uh, neuro ophthalmology. It generally consists of essentially a full day of clinic. Um, there are consults that that we are responsible for in the hospital, depending on the setting. Um, in academic centers, you do have more kind of inpatient consultations. Are you, as a neuro-ophthalmologist, are you more prone to full-time neuro-ophthalmology in an academic setting versus a community setting like you're in? I think the nature of the um, the subspecialty really lends itself better to an academic setting just because there, uh, there are a lot of ancillary testing um, that, that we have uh, available. But working in a community setting, I don't feel like I've been limited in, in that respect. What drew you to community versus academics? Uh, the research or, or the absence of research, rather. The absence, yeah. Yeah, so you didn't like the, the need to constantly be churning out research. Correct, and, and, and the and the politics of, of climbing the, the academic ladder, I, I just would rather not deal with. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, that's a very common reason. So talk about that typical week then. You come into work on a Monday. What are you doing day in and day out? And so it's, uh, for, for neuro-ophthalmology, it, uh, it's essentially almost 100% clinic. There are the inpatient consultations that, that I mentioned, but in my practice, they're handled by the general ophthalmologist that is on call. And then if they have any issues, they'll refer them to me um, to be seen in, in clinic. What does call look like for a neuro-ophthalmologist? For at least uh, judging based on the, the call I took in, in my fellowship, the, I served as a, um, on phone call. Um, so the, the residents would call me whenever an issue came in and they had any questions about yeah. What is what is a typical neuro-ophthalmology emergency where you'd get a phone call or maybe you would even have to go in? Uh, the biggest one, I, I would say, is a condition called temporal arteritis, uh, where you have inflammation in the blood vessels uh, at the side of the head, um, which can, uh, can either present with uh, irreversible vision loss or lead to impending vision loss. And that's one instance where we need to act quickly to get the appropriate treatment started. Elevated SED rate? Elevated head rate. Boom. Yep. I still got my medicine down. All right. Um, so call not terrible. Not a lot of emergencies where you'd have to go in. I think I went in maybe twice uh, th- during my fellowship in the middle of the night. But yeah. Okay. Very do, manageable. Do you feel like you have good work-life balance? I do. More so better now that I'm out of training uh, than when I was in training, of course, because you're kind of uh, available <laughs> on. 24-7. Yeah. But I always felt I was able to do things around the city and uh, not have to worry. Talk about residency, not residency, fellowship. So fellowship is one year. How big or small are the typical neuro-optho programs? So it's generally um, only one fellow a year at, at any institution. There are some that have two. I think only one program has three fellows a year. Um, so it's a very, very small community. <laughs> Q3, man, man, that's nice. So, so if you go to a fellowship and, it, and you're the only one, you really are like 24-7 for that year. Correct. Yeah. How do you handle that? It, <laughs> uh, it gets better over the course of the year. The middle and end of the year, the, the residents are well-seasoned. And, and so they, at least at my program, tended to wait until the morning to call rather than 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so, uh, so, you, so that, you was, that well. was fine. I, I did. <laughs> How competitive is NeuroOpho? It varies by the year. My year, I think we had, or at least most of the, the, the spots fill. The following year, or, or this year, I, I know there are a lot of um, open spots that, that are available. So it, it, it fluctuates, but 
it's certainly not difficult to, to land a spot. For a med student who is interested in neuroptho, what should he or she be doing to be competitive if it is one of those competitive years? I think uh, making it to the, uh, our national conference, uh, which is called NANOS, uh, the North American Neuro-Ophthalmology Society. Just a cool name. Um, it is. Uh, it's because it's such a small community that everybody knows each other. And so getting your face out and meeting the, the other neuro-ophthalmologists um, out there, I think, is really the best way to, uh, to get ingrained into the field. All networking. It is. Such yeah. a huge believer in networking. Need to go out there and meet people and be, be a good person for them to want to help you. For an osteopathic student listening to this, do you see any negative bias in the neuro-optho world towards DOs? I don't know. There are actually a, a lot of the, the leaders in Nanos did come from osteopathic medical schools. Nice. All right. That's good to hear. So once you're finished with your one-year fellowship training, what opportunities are there to further subspecialize for somebody that, that wants that extra punishment? There are other kind of related fellowships. There, uh, I know there's a group in uh, Johns Hopkins that uh, does a neurootology fellowship um, where they focus more on, on dizziness that has its own punishment. But, and then a lot of the other groups kind of have, have their own niche as well. Some of the uh, neuro-ophthalmologists specialize in uh, the pupil, for example. Others in eye movement abnormalities and eye movement recordings. Um, and then others uh, still in for more uh, vision loss uh, disorders. It doesn't make sense to me for a neuro-ophthalmologist, as, as we were kind of discussing the difference between ophthalmology and neuro-optho, the description was for neuro-optho, it's a lot of outside of the eye pathology. But for a neuro-ophthalmologist to specialize in the pupil, what, what about the pupil is interesting for a neuro-ophthalmologist? Other than it's just a really cool thing. I think I'd have to ask the people in, the, in that group. But yeah. They, I don't know why, for, for whatever reason, they, they, they're known as the pupil people. <laughs> the pupil people. I like. I like it. All right. For the primary care physician that's listening to this, if you were to go and give them a presentation today about how to treat patients with some sort of uh, ophthalmologic, ophthalmologic uh, condition um, and and train them on how to better be aware of certain conditions that you treat day in and day out, what would, what would you want them to know? As I guess with any specialty, uh, really examining people with, with your own eyes is, um, not, no pun intended, um, <laughs> is important. Um, and so it, while there, there are things that can wait in, in neuro-ophthalmology, I think also not being shy about reaching out to a neuro-ophthalmologist um, whenever you're concerned about any, any issues, if it's not appropriate for neuro-ophthalmology, we'll, we'll direct you otherwise. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm always willing and open to, to answering any questions. It sounds like a very similar to, to general neurology, where I know when Allison was on a while ago talking about general neurology, the, the need for primary care to know a good neuro exam so it sounds like very similar. You need to know how to look at an eye, look at a retina, and, and kind of yeah. get some sort of differential going. Any specific resources that you think are top-notch for primary care to look into to, to learn eye exams? Yeah. Um, so there is a uh, online database called NOVEL. Um, I think it stands for the Neuro-Ophthalmology Visual Education Library. Um, Man, neuro-optho yeah. is all with the, the acronyms. Yeah, we have all the good, all the good acronyms. 
um, where they have uh, examples of, of all the all the things that we read about in our textbooks going through medical school and and so they always have uh, pretty good good examples okay good what specialties do you work the closest with I would say neurosurgery because brain tumors often can can impact vision my, my colleagues in neurology as well that, that of course is a great overlap and then we, we do see a lot of uh, a lot of dizzy patients in, in neuroophthalmology, and so the ear, nose, and throat doctors as well. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine that you see neuroophthalmologists taking advantage of? I know of a few that uh, went into industry. Um, there's a couple of uh, major uh, clinical trials that are ongoing, um, looking into treatments for some of these neuroophthalmic uh, diseases, but it's mostly uh, clinical practice uh, yeah. as the kind of end game. What do you know now that you wish you knew before starting your fellowship training? You know, I don't know that I've, uh, I've really learned anything yet being so um, early on in, uh, in my professional career. Um, but th- there is an end game, at least. And, and there were times during my fellowship where I would have liked to call it quits, but glad I didn't at this point. What do you like the most about being a neuro-ophthalmologist? I like the variety. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, there's a little bit of neuro- different areas of neurology in neuroophthalmology, and, and so every day there's something new to, to learn. And my patients continually teach me something new. What do you like the least? The charting. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah. Everybody is the charting and billing. Yeah. But although because you, the company you work for, you don't have to worry about billing. Correct. Yeah. That's nice. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of neuro-optho for somebody that, that may be on this path as a med student or maybe even as a pre-med that they should be aware of? I think neuro-ophthalmology is still a, a rather new subspecialty. And so there, uh, I feel like there are kind of two, kind of two peaks in, in terms of the neuro-ophthalmologists that are practicing out there. Um, kind of the, the first generation that are starting to get to retirement now, and then this newer generation uh, now that that's coming through. And so... Um, I, I think there will be a lot of turnover in terms of the field, and we'll, we'll be losing a lot of our a lot of the mentors that we had. But uh, I, I don't think that'll really change the um, the practice of neuroophthalmology. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a neuroophthalmologist? I would. Yes. Any last words of wisdom for the med student out there, pre med, or or maybe even a neurology resident who's listening to this, thinking about neuroophtho? I would say come to neuroophthalmology clinic and check it out. Um, I had no, no no thought about it before the rotation. And here I am now. All right. There you have it. Hopefully you learned something. I know I did. I didn't know that neuro-ophthalmology, the majority of neuro-ophthalmologists out there were diagnostic physicians. They don't operate. You could have fooled me. I think of ophthalmology. I think of a surgical subspecialty. But when you add that neuro on the front of it, then you lose the, apparently you lose the surgical part of it. Um, you don't get that training. So Hopefully, you learned something about community-based neuro-ophthalmology. Can you do me a favor? I would love for you, if you're a medical student right now, just like Anthony Tran is at the University of Colorado, he's a first-year medical student here, he shared this podcast, the, the Specialty Stories, in his Facebook group for his class. If you have a Facebook group for your class, or you have some sort of email listserv or email group, whatever it is, I would love for you to say, hey, fellow classmates, check out this podcast that Dr. Ryan Gray does, Specialty Stories. Listen to it. Enjoy it while you're exercising, taking a break from all of your other studying. So I would love for you to do that. I hope you have a great week. I'm always looking for more guests. 
interesting guests, interesting specialties. So if you know anybody, if you have a family member who's a physician who should be on this podcast, email me, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net, and we'll make it happen. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.